I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I wanna welcome everybody to this special episode of The American Idea. Today, we're gonna be taking uh, a look at and having a conversation about the Supreme Court's recent term, which is ending here, uh, the 2021-22 term, ending here in June with some landmark blockbuster decisions. I wanna have a conversation about the meaning of those cases and take a look at some of the specific cases with a a great scholar of the court uh, and of the constitution, Professor Josh Dunn. Josh is Professor of Political Science at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs. He is also head of the Center for the Study of Government and the Individual at the University of Colorado. Uh, He is a a great teacher. He's been part of Ashbrook's Master of Arts in American History and Government program, teaching in the program for years now, teaching on the U.S. Constitution, on the Supreme Court, on the federal judiciary, and teaching... uh, classes, of course, at the University of Colorado in those same areas. Josh is a widely published author, including most recently a wonderful volume that he has put together for Ashbrook for our core documents collections entitled The Judiciary. It's a collection of primary sources from the span of American history, really, uh, that include historical introductions and questions for reflection on those primary documents. It's a terrific collection. I've already told students in one of my classes, when I teach the Supreme Court course, I'm going to use that book edited by Josh Dunn. It is first rate. Josh, thank you so much for editing that book and for joining us today. Great to be with you, Jeff. Um, This is a blockbuster term. I'm not, people knew, I guess, in the fall that when the court took these cases that had the potential to be an important term but it has turned out to be historical. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say. Are you surprised by the significance of the court's rulings this term? Well, not now, because we had the uh, leak of the draft opinion in the Dobbs case, the, which overturned Roe versus Wade. So there was a chance right, going into this term that we we're gonna have a really sig- sig- significant term. Uh, but I was, uh, I was not expecting the court to fully overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, and so uh, I, I thought there might be some kind of compromise position where Roberts would uh, peel off one of the conservative justices and uh, uphold the Mississippi law, but not strike down Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which would then make this term a significant term, uh, but not quite as significant as it, as it has become. Obviously, Roe versus Wade was one of the most significant decisions of the last 50, 100 years of all Supreme Court history. And if the Supreme Court overturns it, that on its own makes the, uh, makes the term a, a significant one. 
Then you throw in the other cases, Second Amendment cases, a couple of religion cases, um, and you have the makings of, of a term that's unlikely to be replicated anytime soon in, in terms of its level of significance uh, for Supreme Court history. All right, let's start with the Dobbs case, the case that everybody's talking about right now. Um, you said that you're a little surprised by how far the court went in overturning Roe v. Wade itself. Tell us, take, tell us a little bit about, for some of our listeners who have heard about this on the news, but they haven't necessarily read the opinions, as I know you have. Tell us about the breakdown of the court. What's the vote? How did the, what are the various opinions? And, and what's your thought uh, on those opinions? All right. So uh, technically, you could say it's a 5-1-3 breakdown uh, as it regards Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, because you have five justices who voted to not just uphold a Mississippi law, which had essentially forbidden abortions after 15 weeks, unless the life of the mother was at stake. Um, uh, And so you have those five, five, five justices who who said not only is the Mississippi law unconstitutional, but we're just going to strike down Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey uh, in their entirety. Then you had Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote a concurring opinion. uh, And it's clear that what Roberts wanted was for the court to uphold the Mississippi law, uh, but to not go as far as overturning Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And then you have three dissenters, uh, the liberal block of the court, Breyer, Kagan and Sotomayor, who wrote a, a joint opinion uh, in opposition to the in opposition to the majority opinion. Um, so you could also describe it as a six-three decision if you include Chief Justice Roberts' concurring opinion, which where he agreed with the, the, the majority that the Mississippi law should be upheld. Frankly, what I think was going on with Roberts is he, it's obvious that he thought Roe versus Wade should be struck down at some point in the future. He just wanted to go more slowly. He's a, he's a judicial minimalist. And since that question wasn't initially part of the uh, of what was being considered by the court, even though it came up in the briefing and some of the or, in, and at oral argument, he would have limited it just to the question of whether or not this Mississippi law was 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 constitutional. Um, so you had the majority opinion written, uh, opinion written by uh, Chief Justice Alito, which completely overturned Roe versus Wade, and then Planned, Par- Planned, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which had reaffor- reaffirmed the core holding of Roe versus Wade, but had replaced the trimester framework with this undue burden standard. Uh, so the consequence of it is that it returns the issue to the states. That's that that that's the the short version of what the result is: that states now have the authority to regulate abortion as they did prior to Roe versus Wade. So what stands out to you about Justice Alito's um, opinion for the five-person majority? So it was very methodical, uh, and much of the material in there is not surprising. Anyone who's really paid attention to the debate over Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey should not be surprised at all by the material that he brings up. Uh, What he focuses on is whether or not the abortion was a right deeply rooted in America's history and traditions, and since it was not, therefore, it cannot be justified under the due process clause. That's the core of his argument. Of course, Roe versus Wade initially had granted a right to abortion under a right to privacy, but the court moved away from that in Planned Parenthood versus Casey and then grounded it in the due process clause. And so what, what Justice Alito said was, up until Roe versus Wade, no one could make the case that this was a right that was in, in any way part of, a, uh, of America's uh, legal history or traditions. And therefore, the court uh, was in, improperly found, found a right to it. 
just goes through all the all the historical evidence went through again very methodically and this is quite well known there there were some actual historical errors made in Roe versus Wade uh, which he covers then does spend a good deal of time on Planned Parenthood versus Casey and arguing why Planned Parenthood versus Casey itself was not a terribly persuasive piece of constitutional analysis or at least the controlling opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey there was a joint opinion controlling opinion written by Justices O'Connor, Souter, uh, and Kennedy. And if you read that opinion carefully, <laughs> they all but come out and say that Roe isn't very persuasive as a piece of constitutional analysis, but for stare decisis reasons, they were going to uh, uphold it. There was just too much water under the constitutional bridge. They weren't going to upset settled expectations. And so he spent a good deal of time explaining why the traditional analysis for upholding a decision, stare decisis analysis was wrong in Planned, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and that these reliance interests that could justify upholding a constitutionally questionable decision do not apply uh, in the case of uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey and, and, and Roe versus Wade. Um, so I, I think the thing that stood out the most was just how, how methodical it. he does. He, 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 of course, quotes, there have been many critics of Roe versus Wade who are pro-choice constitutional scholars. And he um, pointed to those scholars. Uh, you know, it's just not a controversial position to say that Roe versus Wade wasn't a terribly persuasive piece of constitutional analysis on it uh, on its own. So that's, I, I think, what you know, what he does. He just he, he recites the litany of criticisms that have occurred uh, of Roe and Casey ever since uh, both of them were written. So you and you you say you were surprised by that, not surprised by the arguments, apparently. Right. You say a lot of this material was known and the arguments right. had been out there a long time. You were surprised, though, that a five member majority fully embraced them in this case. Yes. Right. I, I, I just thought that Chief Justice Roberts might be able to peel off maybe one of the newer justices on the court, depriving them of a five person majority uh, to, to, again, say, well, the Mississippi law should be upheld, and then we'll revisit the constitutionality of Roe and Casey itself later on, create some kind of modified standard with, bio, you know, but also I, I, I suppose that's one of the interesting things about the opinion is that Alito argues that there's really no um, judicially manageable standard that they could replace what the court created in Planned uh, Plan Parenthood versus Casey. Because as soon as you sacrifice the viability standard, uh, which the court was willing to do, obviously, um, then there's just no reasonable place to draw the line. Uh, it, you're completely untethered, even more so than, uh, e than, than you were in Roe and Casey from the constitutional text. So I just thought that there would probably be one of the justices who would be a little uncomfortable uh, doing it all. Uh, right now in the in the Dobbs decision. But obviously, uh, Chief Justice Roberts wa wasn't able to convince one of them to, to join him. So what was Roberts' uh, opinion in his concurrence? He's agreeing with the decision, as you said, to uphold Mississippi's ban on abortion after 15 right. weeks. But he's disagreeing that Roe needs to be, that Roe should be overturned. What's Roberts' argument? So I, I again, I think reading him carefully, he it's pretty clear that he thinks that Roe versus Wade was not constitutionally grounded, that Casey wasn't uh, constitutionally grounded, and so that eventually the court should overturn it. But he makes these arguments from judicial restraint, which is that the court should only decide the question immediately before it, uh, which, which in that case was, is this Mississippi law unconst uh, unconstitutional or not? And so he was willing to say, this law is uh, constitutional. Mississippi can do this. 
we will then leave the question of the overall constitutionality of Roe and Casey to, uh, to another day. I think that's what was clearly going on in, uh, in his mind. Um, again, he's a minimalist. He likes to move slowly and gradually. You actually see some of that in the, uh, some of the other significant cases from, uh, uh, from this term. Uh, but that's the, I, I think that's the core, core of his argument. The court just shouldn't have, have gone as far as it did, even though it's, it's pretty obvious that he, 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 he agrees with the, the constitutional critiques of Roe and Casey. How about the three dissenters? What's the argument that they make? Right. So the three dissenters, um, I, I, I think they were dealt a tough hand because, again, it's um, yeah. There's been so much criticism of Roe uh, from across the ideological spectrum by constitutional scholars uh, that it was going to be difficult for them to to make a case other than. Uh, on stare decisis grounds. And that's that's and, really yeah, what the and court- Explain to our listeners who might not be constitutional scholars what you mean by stare decisis. All right, so stare decisis just means let the decision stand. So the idea that you follow precedent. And this is a principle in our system, but is not an ironclad rule. After all, the Supreme Court overturns itself fairly regularly, much more often than, than people realize. And there, of course, been times in Supreme Court history where it was repeatedly uh, overturning press. And if you just look at the Warren Court, it was it was just overturning a, uh, you know, case after case after case, um, uh, often very significant cases. Um, So the idea of stare decisis is let the decision stand because this provides regularity uh, uh, to the law. And then people can, of course, orient themselves based on what the law says, um, so uh, allows it to allows you allow citizens to know what the law will be in the future, right? Uh, but again, in a constitutional system, stare decisis can never be anything other than a guiding principle. It can't be an ironclad law because the first object of fidelity for a judge in a constitutional system, for a justice in a constitu- constitutional system, is the constitution itself. After all, they take an oath to uphold the Constitution. And so if there is a decision that a justice thinks was egregiously unconstitutional, if they were to actually follow stare decisis, it means that they would have to violate their oath. (laughs) Um, However, occasionally the court will uphold precedents where some of the justices in the majority hold serious questions about the constitutionality of the decision. After all, that's what the court did in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. It was clear that the controlling uh, three justices there had serious concerns about uh, about Roe Ro versus Wade. So the dissenters in, in the Dobbs uh, case, they did try to argue that, in fact, you could try to root the right found in Roe versus Wade in America's history and traditions. That just to be very blunt, I don't think that was persuasive. And what they say is that is that the right found in Roe versus Wade was connected to a broad swath of other decisions made by the court. Uh, and there are a couple of problems with that. First of all, that just about everything is connected to a broad swath of cases um, decided by the court. So there's really no limiting principle there. You could find just about anything if that's, if that, if that's the case. The second problem is that as the court even recognized in Roe, this was something different than some of those other cases. So for instance, some of the other cases, Griswold versus Connecticut, Eisenstadt versus Baird involved access to contraception or information about contraception. And the court made it clear, yeah, 
This is different because it actually involves the destruction of, as it, call, as it said in the case, potential life, uh, which is different than just having access to information about, information about contraception. So even the court in Roe recognized and said that it was different. Um, so they start there, try to, try to ground it in America's history and, and traditions. Um, but they don't really answer the evidence that's provided by Alito about, you know, all, at the time the 14th Amendment was written, basically every state forbid abortion. Uh, at the time Roe versus Wade was decided, really every state uh, either completely forbid abortion or had significant restrictions on abortion that Roe uh, overturned. So they didn't have much of an answer to that. I think the core of, uh, uh, of their argument really was stare decisis. And there are reliance interests that people have because of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that's where you get into the debate. What the majority said in the decision was reliance interests only apply in very specific circumstances where there's kind of a very precise date. Or you, have, you have to really know with precision uh, when, when you're going to have to rely on this precedent. Uh, and the majority Alito said that that just doesn't apply here. Instead, it's more of a reliance interest because you know that because of Roe versus Wade, that in the future, you might be able to have access to abortion if you become pregnant. And so it lacks the specificity that the court normally requires for upholding a precedent uh, that it regards as wrongly, wrongly decided. So that was the majority. Uh, the um, the, the, the dissenter said, well, that's an impoverished understanding of reliance interests. Uh, so I think that's kind of the, the core of the debate but, uh, uh, between the two. One of the opinions I forgot to mention, haven't mentioned yet, is Justice Thomas's concurrence, yes. which has drawn significant uh, coverage in the press. He joined the majority opinion uh, upholding the Mississippi law, overturning Roe v. Wade. But in his concurrence, he seemed to go even farther. Explain Justice Thomas's concurrence. Yes. So what Justice Thomas said is that he would like to revisit really almost all of the Supreme Court's substantive due process decisions. Uh, because he regards the idea of substantive due process is constitutionally illegitimate. So the idea behind substantive due process is that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment and, and also the Fifth Amendment, that they, it guarantees more than just procedural fairness. And that's the, that's the obvious uh, implication of the due process clause is if the government's going to impose a burden on you, that, uh, you know, throw you in jail or tax you or fine you, something like that, it has to use fair procedures. Um, Substantive due process addresses the, you could say, the fairness of laws. Uh, and it's always been controversial because it seemed to be very open-ended and allowed uh, justices and the court to engage um, in picking and choosing what rights it found important. So, for instance, I think it was Justice Black that always called it natural law due process. as <laughs> a way of uh, kind of denigrating us. It's not really constitutional. It just allows for judges to do what is right in their own eyes. Uh, and so Justice Thomas said we should revisit all of these cases. So that would include several of the, the sexual autonomy cases invol involving same-sex marriage and same-sex uh, same relations. So Obergefell, Lawrence versus Texas, uh, but then also the cases that uh, provided the foundation for Roe versus Wade, like Eisenstadt versus Baird and Griswold versus Connecticut. So he said all of these should be reconsidered. However, however, he did say 
they should be reconsidered, but they should be reconsidered under the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. So even though it's clear that he thinks that they don't, uh, that they aren't persuasive uh, pieces of constitutional analysis under the due process clause, it appears that he, you know, thinks it's an open question, at least with some of them, about whether or not they could survive under the privileges or immunities clause. And the privileges or immunities clause has largely been a dead letter uh, since 1873 in the slaughterhouse cases. The court, by and large, wrote it out of the Constitution. It's been one of Justice Justice Thomas's special projects to try to overturn the slaughterhouse cases and rehabilitate the privileges or immunities clause. Uh, so some of what's been said about his uh, about his concurring opinion is just misleading um, because they pay attention to the fact he said we should revisit all these cases, but then neglect that immediately after that he says we should revisit them, but under the privileges or immunities clause. So, uh, and not, he, them. so your point is he's not saying that these rights simply don't exist. He's saying we need to go back and look at another part of the Constitution to see if right. they do in fact exist. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, reconsider them under another part of the Constitution. Now, um, what about what about someone like Justice Kavanaugh, who I think also wrote a concurrence, who seems right. to suggest, no, 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 we're not going to go back and reconsider any of these other opinions, or at least that's the way his opinion is being reported in the press. Yes. So that yeah, I think that he is, in his opinion, he is trying to foreclose um, reconsideration of these opinions, and, uh, uh, partly, I, I think, to minimize some of the the uh, political, perhaps some of the, 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 the political attacks on the court as, as a result of it, uh, as a result of the decision in, in Dobbs. Um, but also, uh, I think that he is concerned that the court will be besieged <laughs> with, these, uh, with these cases, bringing, uh, you know, forcing the court to address them. I, I suspect that Kavanaugh thinks that this would be dangerous for the court. <laughs> um, that there might be actually, I, you know, I don't know how many votes are on. on I think Oberga, out of all those cases, Obergefell is probably the most at risk. Um, and I think that Kavanaugh thinks that it, that would uh, that, that that should be treated differently. I suspect that in the end, there's not five votes there. I think that they would treat the reliance interests under Obergefell differently than they do uh, the reliance interests in, in Roe and Casey. But yes, he is trying to foreclose litigation. I, I think that's a good way of uh, summing it up. I see. Look, the way that you're describing these, all of these opinions, it's striking to me listening to that, Josh, that it looks like even with the three dissenters, that originalism, looking at the Constitution and saying, what does the Constitution mean when it was originally adopted or when the 14th Amendment was originally adopted in 1868? What, it, what the words meant when they were originally adopted, that's what should guide the Supreme Court when it makes decisions. Is it fair to say now, based on the Dobbs decision, that originalism has won, that it's now the dominant approach to interpreting the Constitution? I think certainly in that majority it is. I think there are questions about, uh, uh, about how much of an originalist Alito actually is, though. Um, I'm not certain that he's a, that he's a, a dyed-in-the-wool originalist. Uh, he's, never, he's never said so in the same way that Justice Thomas has uh, or that Justice Gorsuch has. In, in Kavanaugh as well, uh, I think I think Barrett and Thomas are the two two most ardent originalists. However, it is quite fair to say that certainly with Alito and Kavanaugh, I think also Roberts, um, that 
originalism is the predominant approach uh, that it had. They re- they kind of start there, um, but I think they have might have some questions about its capacity uh, to 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 resolve perhaps some constitutional questions or disputes. So uh, I th- I think it's fair to say that originalism has largely won. Um, but given the fact that I, I've never seen Alito or read Alito saying that he is, he, he is a thoroughgoing originalist in the mold of a Thomas, uh, or a Scalia or a Gorsuch, I'm not willing to say that it's, uh, ent- it's, uh, entirely one. I see. Okay. Interesting. Well, look, so, um, this is probably the most blockbuster decision in a blockbuster year for the court. Um, for our listeners, what's another one that you would point them to, whether it's on a hot button social issue or maybe it's maybe off people's radar, but turns out to be a really important case. What's another one you think our listeners ought to be thinking about and looking into? All right. So I'll actually give three very, very quickly. Yeah, sure. Two, I'll have more to say than the other one. The first one would be the Second Amendment case out of New York, where the Supreme Court uh, essentially says there's a right to carry out uh, a weapon outside of the home. I have a right to carry a gun outside of the home. So that was a significant set, Second Amendment case and received a lot of attention. Uh, but there are two other cases, both involving the religion clauses uh, and, uh, and one involving the religion clauses and the free speech clause that I think are pretty significant. And I think, in fact, for teachers are going to be very significant. So one was called Carson versus Macon, and this was uh, a case out of Maine. And the issue there was that Maine has a what's called a tuitioning system because it's a very rural state. Many communities don't have enough students to have a high school uh, or junior high school. And in those communities, the state provides resources for for high school students, junior high school, middle school students to attend uh, another school. And that can be either a public school in another community or a private school. Now, historically, Maine had allowed religious schools to participate in this. But in 1981, Maine changed the law saying that religious schools could not participate. Uh, And the issue was whether excluding those religious schools violated the free exercise clause. Now, there are a few things that were significant about this. One, even though Maine does not have what's called a Blaine Amendment. um, So there was a Senator Blaine from he was he was ironically from Maine. Uh, but he wanted to add an amendment to the Constitution saying that you couldn't provide money to uh, parochial institutions. This is in the late 1800s. He failed on that score. But 37 to 39 states, depending on how you count these amendments, have Blaine amendments in them. Uh, this was all part of a kind of anti-Catholic spirit of the age. Uh, there's no doubt about that, um, because parochial meant Catholic. Um, and so the idea was we're going to deprive money to Catholic schools. Uh, much of it was motivated by fear over Catholic immigration and the thought that Catholic kids uh, or Catholics in general weren't suited for Republican life. Um, and so you needed to take Catholic kids, send them to the public schools, which were really Protestant schools, uh, and then turn them into to, to, to good kind of Protestant Catholics so that then they could uh, re- really be citizens of this uh, America's constitutional. That was really what the story behind behind most of this. Now, Maine's law essentially had the same effect as a Blaine Amendment, and the constitutionality of Blaine Amendments has been under consideration for five to six years now by, by, the, uh, by the Supreme, uh, Supreme Court. Uh, and there's a series of cases going 
First one was called uh, Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer. Another case, Espinosa versus Montana. And then you get this Carson versus Macon. What the Supreme Court said was that excluding uh, religious schools from this uh, program violated the free exercise clause because it discriminated against religious believers or people who wanted to send their, to, uh, their kids to a religious school on the basis of religion. Uh, uh, you have a generally available benefit. You can't exclude people on the basis of religion. That, that violates the free exercise clause. Uh, and so this decision went a long way towards also essentially saying that Blaine amendments are unconstitutional. I think Blaine amendments are only very narrowly, there's a very narrow slice of policies that, that could be considered constitutional now. Uh, really, it would be something like giving people money to become a minister. <laughs> that's, that's, that's about it. Because there's a case, Locke versus Davey, that the court addressed where uh, it upheld that, and they said that uh, not giving money uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to students who are training for the ministry are in a program explicitly training for them for the ministry do, does not violate the free exercise clause. So that's okay. That's about it, right? So that was pretty, that was pretty significant. Uh, another case, uh, Kennedy versus Bremerton, um, case just handed down today. This involved a, an, a, uh, an assistant football coach in Bremerton, Washington, who for many years had kind of private individual prayer at the 50-yard line by himself after football games. And then students ended up, uh, players ended up coming to him and say, hey, can we pray with you? And he said, sure. And then, then those players would then end up inviting players from other teams uh, to, to, uh, to pray with him. This then led to a complaint to the school. Uh, and the school said, you have to stop this or we're going to fire you. And he said, well, and they said, if you're going to pray after the game, you have to do so privately with no, no players around. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so they fired him. And so then the question is whether or not this prayer uh, uh, was constitutionally protected. And the Supreme Court said it was. Um, it, they addressed the free, free speech clause of the First Amendment, the establishment clause, and the free exercise clause. Uh, now, for teachers, this matters um, because I think the reach of the decision actually goes beyond just religious speech. If you read the decision, the court, I think, is expanding the free speech rights of government employees in, a, in fairly significant ways. Uh, because previously what the court said was that government employees don't have free speech rights if the speech is conducted pursuant to their duties. And so what, uh, what government employers would tend to do would we have a very broad conception of what the duties of the employee would happen to be. Um, which then means for public school teachers in particular that they have very limited uh, free speech rights. <laughs> um, and given the circumstances surrounding the case, the court, it was obvious, it was clear that they were afraid of government providing these massive and expansive definitions of, of what your job duties are as a way of limiting your free speech rights. So this is a major freedom of religion case, but I think it, it might go down as an even more important free speech case for government employees just in general. So if you're speaking on something of public concern, they, it's going to, I think government employees are going to be, have to be very careful if they say, oh, this is related to your duties. Therefore we can punish you for it. 
So it sounds like a, a, a much ex more robust understanding, as you say, of freedom of speech and of freedom of religious exercise uh, in government circumstances, including public schools. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I, sh I should have mentioned this as well. The other significance of this is the court completely buried the Lemon test in Kennedy versus Bremerton. The court made it clear that the Lemon test is no more. This was uh, a test created in the early 1970s and Lemon versus Kurtzman had been derided <laughs> for a long time and the court had never completely just buried it. Uh, there was a case a few years ago, two, three years ago, American Legion versus Mer American Humanist Association where they said the Lemon test no longer applies to public monuments um, but the, it was unclear whether or not it still applied to K-12 education. And the court came out today and said, look, uh, free uh, analysis of the Establishment Clause will, will not be guided by the Lemon Test at all anymore. Instead, it should be guided by the founders' understanding and so also our traditional practices. Um, so a kind of text and history, original understanding uh, approach to the uh, to the Establishment Clause. So that was that was significant as well. Interesting. It does seem like if you look at the Dobbs case, the Second Amendment case and these religious liberty cases, uh, a common theme again is the prevailing uh, the dominance or at least the preponderance of the originalism approach and the consequences of that. And for expanded notions, for example, of religious liberty, free speech, uh, in the Second Amendment, among other cases. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. I was just going to say, looking at these really important cases, is there one more case out there that are, you're, you're a constitutional scholar. You spend all yeah. your time studying the court and its decisions. Yeah. Our listeners don't do that, but they, right. they're familiar, but they might not know every case of importance from the court. Is there a case out there that you, that the court decided this term that might oh, be off our radar, or maybe a case that's coming up that's off people's radar that we should be thinking about or that is important. Oh, goodness. That's a tough one just because I've been spending so much time thinking about the Dobbs case, the, you know, the New York Second Amendment case, these two religion cases. I'm, that's actually one of my projects uh, after the Supreme Court wraps up this term is to go back and look at some of these other cases and see right. if there's one that, that I've <laughs> overlooked that I need to revise my syllabus and include it because these other ones have sucked up, they, they've sucked up so much of the oxygen, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, right. Not, I'm not sure. Uh, well, let me, I, I well, let me ask you this. Yeah, yeah. All right, let me ask you, you this. You have question. one. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Uh, let me ask you this. Looking forward to the next term. Now, this term is almost yes. done. There yep. will be, yep. I'm sure, a few more opinions handed down, but we're almost done, I think. Um, yep. Looking forward to the 22-23 term, what's one thing that our listeners should be looking for from the Supreme Court for next term? So affirmative action. Uh, that's, I think, going to be the most controversial issue before the court next term. So you have two cases, from one from Harvard and one from the University of North Carolina. So one raises a... Uh, well, it's both a constitutional and a statutory case, the one from Harvard, uh, and then University of North Carolina, it's really an e just an equal protection case. And that's uh, students for fair admissions versus Harvard, student for fair admissions versus University of North Carolina. Uh, and so the question is whether or not the Supreme Court is going to uh, overturn its decisions allowing for diversity to, be, diversity to be a compelling government interest and therefore have racial classifications in college admissions programs. 
So I think that's going to be the most controversial uh, area. I think there might be some other non-delegation uh, cases coming where the where you do have some people trying to convince the court to resuscitate the non-delegation doctrine, uh, which really hasn't been a going concern since the 1930s. So I'm trying to think there, I know there are some cases in the works. I can't remember if the court has granted cert on any of them though. But so I would say those, I, I, I you know, pay attention to the affirmative action cases. Yeah, thank um, you very much. Yeah, that's just so interesting. And as you say, it would require the court to overrule uh, some cases from decades and decades ago. But as we see from this term, the court has been willing to do that. Yeah, th this court is not shy about doing that. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I would. I, I certainly think. I, if if I had to guess, yeah, I, I think that affirmative action will be ruled unconstitutional. Um, yeah, well, that would. That would. Uh, yeah, if I were being forced to put money on it, that's what I would do right now. Well, our listeners heard it here first. <laughs> Josh, right. thank you so much for taking the time to be with us to. Uh, to comment on the Dobbs case and on the Supreme Court's, as they say, landmark blockbuster term and what we can expect in the days ahead. Josh Dunn, thank you so much for joining us on The American Idea. Thanks. Great to be with you, Jeff. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.